Welcome to the Colby Cast, episode 48. Glad you could join us. Today, the crew interviews my wife, Chrissy Almanzar, who is the chair of Colby's theology department. During her senior year at UCLA, she studied as an exchange student in Göttingen, in Germany, where she attended classes, wrote papers, and gave presentations, all in German. After earning her master's in theology at the same university, she was invited to complete her PhD with a professor there. After much prayer and consideration, she pressed pause on that opportunity in order to spend more time with our children. We are so blessed to have her at Colby, and I am blessed beyond belief to have her as my wife. Enjoy the show. Hi there, I'm Bonnie, liturgical musician, popcorn and podcast fanatic, and Colby homeschooling mom to four lads and lasses of middle and high school age. And I'm Hope, Bonnie's younger sister and a Colby alumna in a phase of life after being a student but before becoming a parent. I studied communication theory and philosophy in college, then I went to law school. Now I'm an attorney, an avid home cook, and the fun aunt to Bonnie's kids. And I'm Jordan. After slipping through a thousand cracks, I completed a PhD in history and literature of ancient Christianity at Göttingen University in Germany. Now I teach Greek and Latin at Colby and serve as the director of public and alumni relations. Our guest today is Mrs. Christy Almanzar, Chair of the Theology Department at Colby, Jordan's wife. Welcome. Thanks so much for coming to the Colby cast. Thanks for having me. It's our great pleasure. We are looking forward to hearing about uh, the Colby theology curriculum, taking a a close look, a deep dive, if you will, at at the aspects of that area of the curriculum, and also musing on the intersection of our ideals and real life. Would you tell us about yourself and how you found your way to Colby? Yeah, um, I I guess I'll start by saying I'm a convert. I I wasn't brought up Christian. I converted to Christianity when I was 18 um, after I left home. And um, I guess a couple years after that became serious about my studies and began studying. I didn't know anything really about um, religion or the Bible or any of those things. Um, and it wasn't until studying, uh, I did ancient Near Eastern civilizations in undergrad and I focused on ancient Israelite religion, um, and Hebrew and Jewish studies. And really in studying that topic, I became more and more open to what seemed before to be pretty pagan, um, with rituals and those kinds of things. I was opened up at that time to Catholicism in a way I hadn't been before as a Protestant. And uh, I guess it was a few years after that uh, where we went to Germany. To I did a, um, a master's degree in Germany in intercultural theology. And I think there uh, we really began to feel like we didn't identify any longer as Protestants. Um, I was studying under a Evangelische faculty um, because there wasn't a, a Catholic faculty at the university we were at. And to study theology in Germany, you have to be either under one or the other. Um, so if you're a Protestant, you're studying under the Evangelische uh, professors. And if you're a Catholic, you're in the Katholische faculty. And there wasn't a Catholic faculty in, in Göttingen. So I was in a um, Protestant confessionally speaking, a Protestant faculty. I guess there is when we kind of really no longer um, 
identified as Protestant and kind of found our way to the Catholic Church through much studying and prayer. And, and that's just really the short of it. We became Catholic and um, I, I was seri- I became serious with uh, learning about history. And really, that's what led us to the church. When did we find Colby? I think it was when I was I was looking at was it Catholic jobs? I was looking and I found a position not for me, <laughs> for my husband. And um, I saw it and I, I said, Jordan, you should apply for this because we, we were just talking about how he would be interested in doing something with homeschooling. He really appreciates his his homeschooled upbringing and um, was, I think, just saying how he would he would even volunteer to, do, you know, he would he love he, he believes in it so much that he would do that. And then that position was there and it was in. Um, it was in our home state, you know, I, so I guess I'm jumping around here, but we both left home and went to Southern California for undergraduate. And that's where we met. And so California is not where we were brought up, but that's where we lived as adults, um, where we met. So, and it was in Napa, California. So I said, you should apply for this. This, I think this is providential. And so he did. And, um, Shortly later, we were moving to Napa and he was working in the offices there in Napa. And I began, we, he and I both began teaching then. Um, he was an advisor for that year. And then um, we both started teaching with the online academy uh, the following year. So I guess that was 20, 2014, 2015, I think, is when we started teaching. Um, so that's how I found Colby. It just, they they had an opening um, for the ninth grade introduction to sacred scripture course, which was exactly my thing. And so I was happy to take that on. And um, it's been seven years now and loving, loving teaching for Colby. Wow, so many things lined up so amazingly. It's, so, it's fun to have you both on and talking together and hearing your story and hearing remembering hearing Jordan speak of his homeschooled upbringing as you referred to and so it's neat to hear have you kind of filling in some blanks and and that way too so that does seem quite ideal that you stepped right into that your area of specialty for that first year of teaching and it has developed from there how did you come to be the chair of the theology department I think my second year, I, I think it was the second year of teaching because I don't think we had chairs the first year. I'm not sure. It was really, I mean, it was only the second year of the of the online academy. So things were still really new. And we kind of all just reported directly to Megan, I think, and Everett, I think is is how we did it the first year. Or it may have been halfway through that 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 first year. I'm not sure, but some somewhere either the first or halfway through the first year or the second year is when um, I became chair of the department. And that's been a challenge for me because administration isn't really one of my, um, I guess, I don't know if I would say strong points, but it's, I've learned a lot, let's let's put it that way. <laughs> um, but but the teaching is really, um, is really fun. And that's what I, it's, it's a pleasure. It's always a pleasure to teach the young students Catholic, you know, distinctives. That's, that's the real fun part of it. Sure, that's interesting. And I would think there would be two separate administrative side, teaching side. What were you going to say? I hope you were going to say something. I was going to say how lucky for your students to have you teaching them. I always love hearing about converts teaching theology because I think it it gives this level of credibility. We have some friends who used to talk about how 
they grew up as just because Catholics, like they were cradle Catholics who weren't particularly invested in their faith. Like, why do you not eat meat on Fridays? And like, well, that's just because that's what Catholics do. And, and I know they're, are, you know, that doesn't apply to everyone. There are many devout cradle Catholics, but I think converts bring this perspective that is so enriching and so holistic of their world experiences and how they came to the faith and how they're now sharing the faith with people. Yeah, it's I've I've spoken about it a few times, probably at least once a year. When I t- when I teach the younger students this year, I'm only teaching the 12th graders, and I guess it's come up a couple times. But the younger students will ask, you know, when 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 it comes up, you know, in passing that I'm a convert, they'll ask in class, like, oh, really? How they want to hear, you know, the eighth graders, the ninth graders, they're always really interested to hear how did you convert? And so I've I've spoken about it a number of times with the students, and they're always interested to hear about it too. Um, it's funny because it's it's just a part of our journey. So it feels very natural to me. Um, there are sometimes I wish I had been a cradle Catholic. Um, but it gives me a sort of perspective when I'm teaching where I'm always asking myself, am I preparing the students for the interactions they'll have with people who are not Catholic? Am I preparing them for what they'll encounter after religion class at Colby or after theology in high school. Um, so I, I, it is always on my mind. Um, I know what they will come up against in the secular world, and I know what they will, if they go to a secular university, what they will hear. And and so I think that's one positive aspect of it. I can say it's something I think about a lot as a teacher that I, I want to make sure I'm not only teaching them the content, but I want to also prepare them for what they will encounter. And I think that also gives them a little bit of confidence knowing that um, they're being taught by someone who found the church because it rang true to me, not because of any other reason. And uh, yeah, so I think I think there are there's a, there are positives to being a convert, even though sometimes I wish I had been obviously brought up a Catholic. It certainly seems like quite a benefit, especially if there are students whom you encounter that might be questioning at that the age group that you teach as high schoolers, the, they're looking to the next step and certainly we question it's it's okay to question and, and it comes up at any age. But it, it seems high schoolers are going through their stage of development where they are right there. Lots of questions come up and even the question of what does this mean or why do I have to do this or what I'm doing this because my parents put me here or whatever. So I would think that would certainly be a, a major benefit of that credibility that you have that you're here intentionally and I would think it would establish you as a trustworthy person for them to be able to float those questions that might be coming up that that you have encountered and have solid sound responses for not the just because like like Hope was saying. Yeah, I I definitely feel like when I do get those questions, I can't say I guess I've had maybe I can count on one hand how many times I've had a student in class where I really felt like they maybe seriously um, questioning more than just doubts, but, you know, in a, in a way where they were kind of determined to not believe, you know. Um, but most of the time, I just get those questions that either they just want the answers to, they just don't know, or they just have doubts about it. They, they can't understand how it could be true, that kind of a thing. 
And um, I can definitely say that having having because I went through a period before I converted of years where I can say I was really, really looking, really, really searching, um, even praying because I had a I had a family member who um, was a devout Catholic. And so I did have some ideas in me, like, for example, I just believed scripture was true. I I wasn't brought up Christian, but for some reason I believed scripture was true. Things like that, that I think I got from this family member. She was my great, great aunt. So she was like a grandmother. But um, having gone through those years of really, really searching and feeling like God was just hidden from me. I mean, I couldn't find the answers anywhere. Um, And then to find it, I can really say when I when I have students ask me those questions that come from just maybe a little bit of a doubt, it's nice to be able to answer with enthusiasm, you know, with with a, a faithful response that if if it's scripture that they're doubting, how can we really know that um, the scriptures are the same as they were actually? How do we know these things? Um, it's nice to be able to say with a really faithful enthusiasm, be, it, because we do when we find the earliest versions of the text, they're incredibly faithful to what we have now. And so I just try to reassure them, um, you know, and, and so it is a, it is a testimony to say I wouldn't be here if if we couldn't know if we couldn't know these things, I wouldn't be here. And And that's just me. I'm just one person. They don't have to take my word for it. And hopefully they won't take my word for it. But hopefully that gives some encouragement. I would think so. And even the almost permission in a way for them to go ahead and, and express the doubt and ask the question and wrestle with it and come to the place of knowing that it's not wrong for me to be wondering about this. Right. And, and those questions are prompting. I mean, those aren't, that's not an accident for, for when students have questions like that, it's a prompting for them to dig in deeper so those are things to push into because I, I love when I get those kinds of questions because that tells me I have a student who really wants to understand what I'm teaching. And so it's like those, those questions are, that's a prompting from the Holy Spirit to dig deeper. And I always tell my students, if, if it seems like something that's true just contradicts church teaching or something that's true somehow contradicts scripture, you're just missing something. So your job then is to find it. Just start digging, asking questions to whoever you know, your priest or your teacher, you know, ask questions and dig um, because the church is true and you can trust church teaching. So it's it's a matter of finding the answers to your questions. That's it's not a it's not a negative thing. Yeah. One of the things that when we were when we were searching for the church i think for both of us went through the experience of if it would be easier if it's anything else like the the becoming catholic was like the the hardest thing so it was almost like we tried to find any way to debunk this you know and and so i think that's also what what gives a lot of confidence and um yeah, so I, I was also thinking, Chrissy, maybe you could talk somewhat about um, how you got involved with your project in, in your master's program at a Protestant university, but how how you found Schoenstatt, like in a really strange way. 
yeah, so what you said, becoming Catholic was the one thing we never thought we'd be. Um, we looked for every avenue. Um, and as a kid, I was always looking for the truth. And and I knew some Catholics, but I didn't know any Protestants. And I didn't know anyone who could tell me who Jesus was. Nobody really knew. Even even the Catholics that I knew didn't really know what to say about the question, is Jesus God or is he God's son? Um, I'm confused by that. Um, no one could really give an answer. So I guess I just kind of assumed the truth wasn't in Catholicism. I also had some other things, you know, some some Catholics in in my life who weren't who weren't the greatest uh, role models. So it was it was easy to kind of project that onto Catholicism in general. Um, so as a kid, I was looking always. I, I was just a religious kid. I don't know why. I would. I would. I always wanted to be baptized. I, I just was always looking for. I. I prayed to God all the time. I just didn't have any kind of understanding of what to do besides that. Um, so when I converted, I didn't really know anything about Christianity, but I converted to Protestantism without really knowing it. Um, because I met someone who had the answers and it rang true. So I was like, yes, I, I believe this. Um, but I still thought Catholicism wasn't, um, you know, it, this happened to be a brand of Protestantism that was borderline anti-Catholic. So, so they had some teachings about Catholicism that would scare a person, you know, it, so, um, that was where I was coming from with that. I remember the day when we were, uh, when we were kind of realizing Jordan and I, when we were like thinking we love the Greek Orthodox church, but we'll never feel at home there. We'll never be Greek. Um, in Germany, there wasn't a Greek Orthodox church in our town, but there was a Russian Orthodox church. Um, so we attended there. We loved it, but we'll never feel at home there. We'll never be Russian. Um, and we were saying to ourselves, if only there was a Western Orthodox church, <laughs> You know, like we we had it hadn't dawned on us because Catholicism was just a no. It was just out of the picture. And then we knew, we knew, um, okay, we have to know why we aren't Catholic. We just have to know that. We have to go about figuring out, we have to be able to say why we aren't Catholic. And very quickly after starting that endeavor, we knew we're going to become Catholic someday. And it was, it was hard because it was, it was hard to swallow for both of us for different reasons. But, um, but yeah, so it took, it took some years, but from that point, because we, we ended up becoming, um, we ended up going to an RCIA class, which was horrid. It was just horrid. We, we left, we didn't return for a while. Um, because we had both been trained in religious studies and, and, and so we went there and I think that they taught, they were teaching on, uh, the Q document, right? I think that's what they were teaching on that. And the, the, the leader of it seemed like he was way more interested in evangelical Protestantism. He he was, he would talk about it and say he was, he was interested in it and he wanted to learn sort of from us what that was like. <laughs> So it was like we were tra almost training him the opposite way. That sounds backwards. Wow. Yeah, it was it was it was really discouraging, really discouraging. Um, so literally, we clung to just our books. We read 
I think Jordan, you were reading Cardinal Newman, was it? John? Yeah. John Henry Newman um, and Chesterton and Belloc, like so many uh, converts were doing. I was reading, I was reading them and I was, I was going to say the part of the problem with um, this reversal of roles where we were going to find, but the person was like more interested in what we were coming from in a way who was leading it. He, he sort of presented it like, like uh, it's exactly like what you're doing. It's cool, like your evangelicalism. And we were both thinking, I mean, we'd lived in Europe for, for several years before this happened. And we'd been all these different versions of orthodoxy where we were total outsiders. We wanted something that didn't look like what we were coming from. Like that was, a, that was the big turnoff for that was we didn't, we were like, we could stay where we are then. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. So, so despite that a couple years later we did we did end up converting but it was through reading the, the few doctrines that were hardest for us that i would say the development of doctrine the very fact that that doctrine can develop because as an evangelical you're you're thinking that the best you can do is to understand the bible so that you can see what the early church looked like because you don't think that the church now is anything like what the early church looked like um and so the idea uh, that doctrine develops was something we had to come to, we had to come to understand that. And then also the church's teaching on Our Lady was something for me that I really had to understand. So we just found a bunch of books that we could read. I was reading St. Louis de Montfort. I was reading um, Cardinal Ratzinger. He was reading what he was reading. And it came to the point where we were able to say we're ready to convert. There are still some things we don't fully understand, but we're we're able to assent to the fact that maybe we'll understand them more once we're on the inside. We're able to assent to the authority of the church. So maybe then once we're within the church, we'll understand all of this more clearly. And that's exactly what happened. We we had a good understanding of things, but I, but for example, I just kind of wasn't totally sure, you know, about our lady, the doctrines surrounding our lady and that sort of thing. Very quickly, um, Marian doctrine became my favorite, favorite. It's, it's the fate, my favorite thing that I never had I'm a spiritual mother that I didn't have as an evangelical. I now have, um, a whole, family, a whole spiritual family in Catholicism. So that's a, a roundabout way of explaining. When I went to Germany to do the master's program, I had applied to the program, I guess, was it before? I guess I applied before we became Catholic, I want to say. And I wasn't able to go that first year, but I went that second year. And in that time, we were received into the church. So I didn't say anything about being Catholic or Lutheran. Um, I went to this program. It was a, a Protestant faculty. Most of what we did was it was intercultural theology. So it was it, intercultural studies, mainly with a sort of a, a Christian bent to it. But because of the intercultural nature of it, I was able to choose a topic on our, on our lady. And um, who can say no to that because everyone loves topics on women these days. And so it went over well. 
And um, yeah, so I was in Germany. And when you're in a foreign country, um, your searches pull up different things than they do in the U.S. And so I'm Googling, trying to find how I can spin a, a, a topic on Our Lady in this um, Protestant program. And I find Father Joseph Kentonick, and he is the founder of Schoenstatt. I came in contact with him first, though I say that because it was like he was, it's like he's alive, but he's no longer living. Um, but I came to know who he is, who he was um, first, and then learned about his movement. And that's what I did my master's thesis on. So I was able to really focus on um, this, the Marian devotion of this Catholic German movement. And it's all over the world. So that is the intercultural aspect of it. But it uses a devotion to Our Lady as this sort of intercultural bridge, as the common ground between all of the um, different Schoenstatters, I guess you could call them. Um, so that that's what I did for my, my uh, master's thesis. It was a, a case study on Schoenstatt. That's fascinating. So the movement that you studied and participated in, does that continue now? Is Yeah, so indirectly, yes. Um, there are, it is still a movement, a modern movement that you will find in on all of probably, I think, every continent. Um, the home shrine is in uh, Germany. Um, and there, there are what they call sister shrines in different places. There's one in Waukesha. Um, Father Kentonick was in Waukesha for a time during his life. And so there's a sister shrine there. Um, and they, they have international conferences. It's very popular in Texas. I know there's a strong community. I've heard in, in California as well. A lot of South, um, countries in uh, Central and South America are, are really have really taken to it. It's in it's in Africa. We I mean we I did interviews um, from people in Hungary um, and uh, Australia, um, Ireland, um, a few from the U.S., a family from Mexico, um, and then multiple multiple people from different countries in Africa. Well, this Kristen's wow. modest. She doesn't tell a lot of her of <laughs> details, but the the um the case study that she did was really unique because um because nobody had studied this movement from the outside or written about the movement from the outside, and um so they kind of became aware of her. the The study was published, and um she ended up doing uh doing a talk at the what what was that conference you did chrissy in? the mariological conference the mariological um, society in, of america yeah mm -hmm. i think that's what it was the mariological society of america she she presented there uh presented this finding and the person that introduced her and and everything was was a Schoenstatt sister that we got to know but it was funny because she was really sort of came off a little bit abrasive like like who is this person we don't know no we don't know who she is and um so why is she talking about our movement and all of that but we we grew to be really close friends with her in a way and she she helped us she sent us to 
Waukesha to, to go to the shrine there. We've been to the one in Germany several times. And they, they Chrissy has done some translations for the Schoenstatt movement of documents that they've needed. They've asked, can can you translate this? We offered to to help with a few things, and that's how they they requested our services. But it's been it was really neat, I think, because um, Chrissy's been talking about this this sort of searching, searching, and without guidance. But then there, that was a big moment I, I know in both of our lives, but especially to her, where it felt like somebody came to her. It was almost like Father Kentenick in that searching on the internet sort of came to her. And that that is for sure continued. So there's no, we don't, we don't participate in the movement up here, but we have tons of their books. And um, Chrissy uh, has a real interest in Father Kentenick because it feels like it's mutual in a way that's why she's accidentally saying like talking about him like he's alive and things like that i think but that's 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 i think there's much more underneath all of that than than what <laughs> what she's saying father kentonick is known for being a, a true father he and he is that to many people and that is how he came i do believe that it was uh divine providence that I found him because he, he has been like a father ever since. So yeah, he's, he's, he's still an important part of our lives. Um, we have the Schoenstatt shrine that our family shrine that we pray at. And so while we're, we're not directly involved with the Schoenstatt community now, I am still on like the Schoenstatt email list. I pray for their intentions. So we're, we're indirectly involved. What you're describing with the worldwide community and this ongoing relationship with Father Kentnick, it's this beautiful story of how alive religion and the faith is. And I think one criticism that people outside of the church and a lot of people inside of the church too have is this idea of like the, the head knowledge of theology or religion without the heart knowledge of it. Um, it's something I've struggled with myself. It's something that it, I think a lot of people have of like the books versus the living it out. And what you describe is such a neat combination that shows how harmonious the two of them are and how they really go together. Since that is a question that I think a lot of people have or struggle with, if we hear the phrase, right? I'm, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. Building on that idea, I was wondering if you could describe a little bit more about the Colby curriculum and how it really bridges both that head knowledge and the heart knowledge. Yeah. Um, you know, in high school, we use the Father Low text. I think it's just one work that he has divided into four books. And he says that he he's arranged it um, according to the larger Baltimore Catechism but that he's abandoned the catechetical presentation of the material. And he said that he's done this because he believes in some other educators at this time. He's, he, he wrote these and they were first published in the twenties. He believed that the catechetical presentation of the content was really conducive to uh, memorization rather than reason. And he said that it encouraged inefficient teaching. And he um, also says that it doesn't um, appeal to the interest of the people. 
So he abandons this sort of method, this catechetical uh, presentation for the high school age, which I think is really important. And I, and he, he does this for good reason. You know, um, memorization is good. Uh, it's good to have scripture memorized. It's good to have the fundamentals um, memorized. All of that's really good. Um, but if you don't pique the interest of the student, um, then you haven't really given them something that they can love, something that they can be really interested in that will cultivate a love for the content and for the church. And so he he says in his books that he's done this purposely um, because he wants to cultivate this love in them. It's surprising, but I think I think one of the best ways to do this when you present material is to give the historical context. It's often lacking in in some just the the regular sort of introduction of material and the memorizing of it. Uh, but people identify with stories, and so if you tell the story of our faith, it it's it's probable that there's going to be something in it for each student that will sort of grab them and they'll be able to say, this is interesting. This, I want to know this whole story. I want to be able to tell this story. It's a, it's one of the reasons I love the low text so much because he gives in the four of them together, really a comprehensive big picture view to the students that I, I feel like it would be really improbable that a student would go through these four texts and not find something that really jumped out at them that gave them an entry point for really loving all of this content. He quotes in the, it's, I don't know if it's the foreword or the letter, the letter to the teacher, somewhere in the beginning, the Father Lau um, quotes Cardinal Newman, when Cardinal Newman is saying what he wants to see in Catholic laity. And he says, I want to see men and women who know their religion and who know their creed and who know history well enough to defend it. So I think history is so important when we present theology um, because it gives them the tools to defend. Most of the attacks that come um, on our faith happen historically in the realm of history nowadays. It's historical issues that seem to be causing some to lose their faith. Um, you know, for example, I'm thinking of students I saw in, in like undergraduate, uh, you know, where I was just becoming a Christian. And I saw and I, I remember my first philosophy class. There were Christians in that class who lost their faith because um, they didn't feel satisfied with the answers they were able to give to the the professor, to the other students regarding things like the Crusades and historical events, um, scripture and, and things like that, they weren't able to give an answer and they lost their faith. They were losing their faith over it. Um, and so I think I think we have to acknowledge that the, the historical component is so important now, maybe more than ever, because people you know can lose their faith over it and people are received into the church over it. I mean, it's the history um, that led us to the church. So um, 
So yeah, I think that's the one component that is present with the, this approach, this method that Father Lowe uses that you didn't typically get with the catechetical presentation of it. So while he arranges the material in in you know off of the Baltimore Catechism, he sort of parts from it in the method of how he presents it. It's one of the reasons I love the the Father Lowe text. Occasionally, a teacher will, if we hire a new teacher or Mostly it's the new teachers. They'll they'll say, have you considered, you know, updating the the text for the high school theology? And we have we've looked at other programs, but none of them are as good as the Father Low text. I love hearing you describe that. And it to borrow your phraseology, it rings true in my experience. I think I've mentioned we only started with Colby in ninth grade and we wish we had started sooner, kind of like what you're saying, that you wish sometimes that you had been a cradle Catholic. But but in middle school, we used a different curriculum that heavily emphasized repeated memorization of the St. Joseph Baltimore Catechism, basically memorizing the entire thing each year. I think we did it sixth grade, seventh grade. And by eighth grade, after two years of just going over the Baltimore Catechism, I could rattle off a lot of the answers. And I didn't believe a single one of them. It was just, this is just what I have been trained to say. And there was no connection. And it was one of the things that drew us to Colby that everything connected. It was this holistic worldview that appeared in theology and history and literature and everything Then the sciences come in even. And that was so refreshing and really very rehabilitating after um, experiencing the catechetical approach to what I tend to consider to be an extreme. I totally agree that there is a place for memorization. And especially like you, I think you were saying younger students excel at memorization. It's a good time to get a lot of things in their heads that they can draw on in the future. But what you're saying about giving students something that they can love rather than something that they can just repeat is invaluable. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, I, I we came into the church because of that historical approach. And so I know I'm probably partial to it, but I, I don't think you can underestimate the importance of how much people need a story to identify with. We're human. Our Lord came into history. We have a historical faith. So we identify with that. I think it's a good entry point for most people, really, you know, various personality types. Everyone can find something in this story of our faith, revelation. I mean, think of from the beginning to the church, everyone should be able to find something that they can really hold on to and say, now this is cool. I I, I do want to hear more about this. This is interesting. And and that's that's really the key because if you can make them want if you can make them love it enough to want to retell it, then they have to really reason through it and be able to articulate it. Then they know it. They really know it once they can do that. So in the online classes, it's great. I love the, the online classes for that reason because we're able to work through it in class. When someone has a question, I I try to see what the students how the students would answer it try to get them talking about it and articulating it. For me, I I like to memorize, uh, you know, writing helps me to memorize. I like writing things down, but talking it out is the best way to really know I have it. I have it. I've internalized it. It's mine. 
and it's not, someone's not going to be able to take it from me easily, you know? Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's an important component, the historical aspect. And I would think for those who find themselves having doubts or questions, knowing the story, the historical context, they see that people have been grappling with these things for ever and they can relate. Maybe they can relate to those folks who were in the, whatever similar state of doubt they find themselves in that they can follow along that path and see where that leads, good or bad, or somewhere in the middle of that. Just the the willingness to stick with it and, and sort it out, I think that is so important and, and something I admire you both greatly for in your own um, conversion experience, that tenacity that you've shown to to keep asking and to keep searching rather than to sit back and and in sort of reticence or resignation, like, I guess I don't know if there is an answer, you know, that kind of thing. So that's kind of two different things there, but throwing that out there. I really appreciated what you said about those questions, those doubts, those wonderings being promptings from the Holy Spirit. I hadn't heard it phrased that way, but it was very appealing to me because God gave us our intellects and he gave us the gift of faith and they're supposed to interact. And so I think sometimes students can feel embarrassed about having questions or different things like that. This idea of, you know, these are promptings to go deeper, such an invitation to enter into those stories that you were talking about. It's okay to question and there are answers out there because I think the scary thing right, is asking questions that nobody knows the answer to. And here, the answer's out there somewhere. Um, and Colby really equips you to know where to look for guidance. Yeah, I tell them if, you know, if you're asking that question, it's because you're supposed to find the answer. God wants you to have that answer. When you acknowledge students' questions and you say, that's a prompting of the Holy Spirit, I bet they're not expecting that. So this invitation to go deeper and respond to this prompting of the Holy Spirit to even recognize that that's what it is. This greater awareness of his presence right here, I think that is a tremendous gift. Something top of mind for me undertaking this whole faith formation dimension of it in education at all is it's not just for these years that they're under my roof, it's for their whole life. So when you speak of knowing what they're entering into, that is very interesting to me. And that combined with some input we got from a parent who was speaking to one of our ad advisors, Chris Bates, she passed along to us a message from a parent wondering how we as parents can mix our ideals with the realities of our place and time and personality. And I think you've spoken a lot to that already, how that is um, recognizing these promptings and, and going deeper and and not staying in that place of doubt, but continuing to go forward. So, so I, I, I have two things I wanted to respond. The first thing that you mentioned about the the prompting, seeing the questions as promptings. Um, as as a as a Catholic, I feel really strongly, and, and maybe this comes also from, I don't know, from being a, a convert as an adult, but I feel very I, I was I was spiritual, as people will say, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual, as you said. Um, I was spiritual before I was a Christian. I, I, I considered myself spiritual, meaning that I prayed, I talked to God almost constantly. I mean, really, really frequently. And um, and so 
I have sort of an upbringing that really was just led by God. It, it wasn't, uh, it, I wasn't formed by anyone. Now that's really dangerous because that can be really dangerous, right? But, but in God's divine providence, I was on a path and I was searching honestly. And so it, it did lead me into the church. But I think because of that, I have a strong awareness, or at least I try to always remind myself that I am physical and spiritual. I am a body and a soul always. So even in my physical life, you know, when I'm just doing whatever, I try to see, to notice God's interventions in just the small things, just the little things, because it's there. It is there if you see it. If, you're, if your eyes are open to see it, it's there. And I do this with my kids. This is a great thing to do with small kids um, to show them the mystery of that God loves us. You know, it's it's such a mystery. I remember as an example, my daughter, when she was like five years old, she came to me one day and she was nearly in tears saying she just missed Mary. She wishes she could be with Mary. She just really missed her. And I was like, well, let's pray about it, you know, and we'll pray to God about it and tell him that you're really feeling like you just wish you could be with Mary. And so we prayed about it. And that day we got a letter in the mail. And on the letter, there was just a little sticker with Mary's face on it. And um, so you could easily think nothing of that, you know, but you know, I saw the the sticker and I thought, Catherine, come in here. And I showed her the sticker and I'm like, God answered your prayer. So we cut out the little sticker, you know, it was stuck to the envelope. We cut it out. We put a, punched a hole in it and she, uh, you know, we put a little piece of yarn around it and she wore it as a necklace. So that was her way of feeling close to Mary. And so in the, in those small things, if you don't, if you aren't reminding yourself that you're not just a body as you're going about your daily things, you're a spirit too. And you're not, and if you don't remind yourself that, that you're soul and body, um, then you can miss those little things. But I think God does talk to us with those little things. And that was a, that was something that was, you know, if you could have seen her face when she thought like it was, it was almost as if he was at the door, you know, um, it was that real to her. Um, so I try to acknowledge those things. So when someone has a question, it's it's very it's very easy to think God is speaking to your soul. He's speaking to you. He wants you to have that answer. Um so find it, you know, find it. And and don't be discouraged if you don't get it right away. This is this is a journey, you know. You may not get it right away. Um but he wants you to have it. And so if you if you seek, you will find it. You will find it. And, and you have to seek honest. You have to be willing to be wrong. You have to be willing to say, I want the truth, even if it means that I'm wrong. I, I, I want the truth any, anyway. Um, so that's that's just one way I try to look at at those small things that that God and it and it's it's good, especially for the small kids in, in that way. Um, you mentioned ideals. Um, it's tough nowadays because I feel like in secular society, we hear sort of this resounding message of ideals are just unreachable. They're impossible. Don't reach for them. You'll just feel bad. You know, you'll just feel sorry when you fail. 
we know as Catholics that we are imperfect. Um, we make mistakes and we do fail. So if we mix those two together, then we can despair, really. We could we can really fall into despair. But Catholicism really teaches the inversion of what secular society tells us. I think Catholicism says you you have to reach for the ideal. It, God doesn't call us to do anything that's impossible for us. Um, so, you know, with God's help, it is possible. We may not reach the ideal in this life. Um, but some do. Um, but it may be in the next life, but it's our job to reach for it. It doesn't mean we can't reach for it. And uh, and we should feel sorry when we fail. It's like the exact opposite of what we hear. You know, when we fail, which we will. We should feel sorry because repentance is a part of, you know, our salvation. That's it's a part of how we get up and we, you know, we allow ourselves to be humbled and then we reach again, you know, we do it again. So the question regarding the ideals, you know, and life, you know, called to live a, a certain way as opposed to what reality actually is. I think we have to remember that we aren't called to do anything impossible where God calls us to do with his help what we are able to do. And so, you know, looking at it, looking at it from the first perspective, it kind of seems like we're doomed from the start, but we aren't. Um, we are able to do that. And uh, some of our greatest heroes in the faith talk about this exact thing. You know, Paul talks about how he he finds himself doing the things that he wishes he didn't do and the things he wants to do, he can't carry out. Um, you know, this is, he, he even, even Paul identifies with this. So this is normal. This is something that we will experience in life, but we have to reach, we have to reach for the ideal, even, even if we don't attain it in this life, I think, um, there's nothing more, empowering than hearing no really reach for it really you can do it go for it there's it's 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 almost depressing to think oh you know we you can't do it anyway and i mean that's really taking all the power away from from people so that those were my my thoughts on the uh the ideals and reality and and how we kind of reconcile life as we're called to live it as opposed to how we actually live it sometimes. Um, but yeah, and and also an, an important thing to remember is scripture tells us that God is faithful to fulfill the work that he's begun in us. So there's nothing, we can't be so wretched. If we, if we will be, if we will allow ourselves to be humbled and we are really striving for God and for the truth, um, we, we are really, you know, striving to live a life of virtue, to do all of the things that um, that will lead us along the path to heaven. Uh, God is faithful to fulfill that work. So even when we fail, we, you know, it's not it's not the end for us. This idea of striving for greatness and not getting discouraged when or not despairing when we don't reach it and recognizing that God will fulfill it. If our listeners want to hear more on this topic that fits just perfectly, uh, episode eight with Colleen Carol Campbell is a good episode to listen to. And I think that the idea of us needing to do, us needing to reach and to strive, that 
speaks to me in a way that as a sort of antidote to the idea of of pray about it and and almost this sort of um passivity the or this helplessness like okay i prayed about it and nothing's happening or whatever and i guess that's just it then so the idea that we we still have to keep working toward it it's highly unlikely that it's it's going to result in some sort of shazam and there it is it's it's more likely that it's going to be a gradual process and we have to keep working on it and how the what's the quote that prayer changes us prayer doesn't change god it changes us and yep. so um that the perseverance we show in in working toward understanding or acceptance or whatever dimension we're working on well that's how god teaches us i mean it it's slow but it's beautiful things come from it i mean if you think about the way as as mothers we teach our children something we don't we teach them something uh, not before we know they're capable of it, but when we know they're capable of it, but before they know how to do it. So we know they're going to fail a few times. We teach them and we, we know they're capable of it, but that we know they're not going to get it the first time. And so it takes time. It takes failing. It takes mistakes. It takes all of that. But then in the end, you know, um, beautiful things come out of it. This is how God teaches us. He, he teaches us this way and he, he does it, you know, with humanity as a whole. Look at how slowly he revealed to mankind his plan to redeem man. You know, it's, it's all slow, but it's purposeful and um, it's at exactly the right time. And uh, it's the way we learn. You know, it's, it's the sort of natural reality that points to the supernatural reality. He has something to teach us through it. Um, there's a reason we don't do everything perfectly immediately, right away, you know? Right, then we wouldn't need him. Jordan and Christy, it sure has been fun talking to you both together, having this conversation together. Thank you both for this time and all that you have given us to think about. You're welcome. It was fun. Thank you. Mother, pray for us. St. Maximilian Kolbe, pray for us. Ad maiorem Dei Gloriam.